0: Here's a content note. Although there are no descriptions of sexual violence in this podcast series, any conversation about sexual violence can bring up big feelings and be hard to hear. Listen in a way that feels safer for you. You get to choose. Welcome to Healing Comes in Waves, A podcast for survivors to explore healing after harm. Too often, the conversation about sexual violence focuses on what was done to us, but not on how we choose to heal. We're going to talk to survivors, educators, and advocates about how to attend to feelings, make connections, and figure out what justice means to us. Healing does come in waves with peaks and valleys, times of movement, and times of stillness. We may not be able to stop the waves, but we can learn how to ride them. My name is Farah Khan. I'm a queer Muslim survivor, trauma counselor, and gender justice advocate who's been working to address sexual violence for over 20 years. I'm also the manager of Consent Comes First, the Office of Sexual Violence Support and Education at Toronto Metropolitan University. Sometimes the first person we need to tell that we were sexually assaulted is ourselves. Too often we can convince ourselves that it wasn't too bad or that we can handle it or that somehow it was our fault. All of these are not true. This episode, we are going to talk to Sendri Melikoff Jay Garcia, an Eternity Martis, but understanding what it means to be a survivor and how that is different for everybody. First, we talk to long standing student leaders, Sendri and Jay. Sendri Melikoff is a daughter of the Tamil diaspora. She's a grassroots feminist and a social worker working to end violence against women. Jay Garcia is a master's of social work student. They are a fat, queer, Latinx community organizer with a passion for nurturing communities of care. Let's talk to Sindri and Jay. So today we wanted to have a conversation about sexual violence from the start. For a lot of folks that are survivors, we struggle with this idea of even understanding if we were sexually assaulted or what even happened that night, that day, or that date. Jay, could you share, how do I know?
1: Feeling different, I think, is one key piece, at least thinking back to my own assault as a survivor. You're navigating perhaps within the first 72 or more hours. How did I feel then? How do I feel now? Why is this lingering? In the moment, leaving that scenario, I just feel like a flood of emotions just kind of come crawling in. And they're hard to sift through, right? Especially if you're trying to piece together. What exactly happened? Maybe I'll let Sandoori say more about this
2: think feelings of unsafety, not being able to connect to my body in the moment, really just asking myself over and over again, what just happened was something that I had to really process before I even thought about, is it safe enough for me to even go to somebody? Like what did I do to let this person think that they had the right to do this to me is things that I still navigate and sift through. And I have like, even talking about it now, my palms are sweaty, but I, th- I think that's the experience, right? When we talk about our experience, I've come a long way, but But if going back to those moments, it's that really outer body experience of being like, why me? What did this happen? How did I lead myself to this moment?
1: When I first learned the word hypervigilance as a survivor, that kind of period of time where everything's just on red alert. If you share like anxiety symptoms, your heart's just racing all the time. You're trying to assess Danger in a situation, even if you're trying to just live your day-to-day life. I think sometimes a survivor is just trying to seek affirmation, just some sort of either sign or message out there that's trying to tell them exactly what happened to them. And I know for me, I needed fellow people to be there in my corner to help push me, uncover that nasty truth that I just wasn't ready to uncover. And that's already someone who knew the lingo and who knew the consent definitions. So it's hard for everyone who's gone through this, even us. about who's allowed to claim space as a survivor who's seen as a survivor that myth of like the perfect victim you know like if i'm not a teenage or newly turned 19 year old white girl i don't see myself as a survivor or the people in hollywood right whose stories get heard and put on blast but i don't see myself and that's hard to navigate when you're trying to figure out what the hell just happened to me
2: mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I think in my experience, social media has been strangely comforting. (laughs) Just understanding like what's next or what do I do or where do I go from here? Because a part of the shame and the blame and the guilt was because of my own lived experiences, but also my cultural experiences that I come from, my identity that I carry, the race that I was born in. So there's so many different multiple factors where I felt like I couldn't go to anybody. I actually came across a lot of social media groups where I just found like people were doing peer on peer work. And then that's what also led me to my peer on peer work on my university campus through social media, actually. And if it wasn't for those peers that sat in a room with me that also said, yeah, it was me too. Like I, You weren't alone. And, you know, these are my experiences and Where we had a place where we felt safe enough to share, I don't think it would have led me down the path that I currently have today. Not only in my activism work, but just in my own healing journey to sit with the mindfulness practices that I use now.
1: And that's such beautiful solidarity, too. When you get access to it, right, being able to maybe grieve collectively, but heal collectively, too. Oftentimes, it's people we know and love who have broken our trust, which put that into the context of trying to understand what happened to me in that moment could even be harder and so complex, or let alone the different traumas that for me, especially as a gender non-binary person, trying to find what it means to do this and not also see myself as just a larger statistic of a group of people that will see nothing but violence and harm in their lives.
2: There is a perception of what healing looks like, and then there's real healing. And no one is expected to heal in a singular or linear pathway it is gonna look so different for so many of us that are considered survivors. And sometimes we are on an ongoing journey of what that survivorship looks like. Whether you choose to tell someone that you love that is something that is totally up to you. It is not something that you need to put yourself through. And if you feel like you don't want to go to the police because that system doesn't represent people and survivors like us, then that is not the path that you have to take. We believe you, we love you, and we care about you. And that is not something that you have to do to yourself and put yourself through if that's not on the table of options for you.
0: So what are the things that we need to hear as survivors? What do we want to hear from other people?
2: I care about you and I'm here to listen or help in any way I can. You didn't do anything to deserve this. I'm really proud of you. And I'm really proud of your courage that you came to share what's going on with you. And I believe in your story and everything that happened to you. I'm so sorry that this happened. This shouldn't have happened to you. Like, you know, really affirming for the person that comes forward. And this is me saying out loud to my younger version of myself too, is that like, it was never your fault. You were so courageous, even during when it happened and after. I love you so much. And I am here holding you every step of the way. And now you're safe. You're safe and you deserve joy. You deserve love. And I care so much for you. Whoever anyone who's listening, you're cared for. So sending big love waves of love your way. If healing is possible,
0: what does it look like right now for you in this moment?
2: First of all, it's dreaming. So I never, ever stop dreaming. I consistently allow myself to dream and I actually make an active part of my day. So it can look like mindfulness, but it's also like active dreaming. So when I write down a list of things that I actually visualize for the future, and I might not get to see that in my lifetime, but I give myself permission to dream of a world where there is no violence on our bodies where there is no violence on multiple communities. But outside from that, for my personal self, I take time to move my body. It's a big part of connecting to my body. So it can look like walking. It can look like working out and obviously working out looks very different for everyone. So I want to be mindful of that. But I think for me, it's just really paying attention and being in tune with what my nervous system needs for me today, just today. Tomorrow it might look different. The next hour it might look different and that's okay.
1: I think that's one thing when we get the privilege of having incredible folks model what love looks like for themselves, model what self-respect and self-care looks like in a way that shows just possibilities for your own self, makes it more of a reality for me. Sometimes I, like so many other people, can get jealous. Why can't I move this quickly? Sometimes we humbly just need to get out of our own stinking thinking, move (laughs) forward and take that risk. Because I've always been more happily surprised and humbled by taking some risks that focus on me and my needs. It's just nice to settle into that, to just live and let the days go by. Sometimes it's just the most mundane but beautiful thing.
0: I always learn new ways to be tender with myself when listening to Sendri and Jay. In this conversation, they reminded me that our dreams are important. Dreaming is a part of healing. It allows us to envision things that we might not have thought were possible before. Now we get to talk to Eternity Martis. Eternity is an award-winning Toronto-based journalist and editor, and also a TMU professor. Her bestselling memoir, They Said This Would Be Fun, about being a Black woman at a predominantly white university, was named one of the best books of 2020 by Globe and Mail, CBC, Indigo, Apple, and Audible. Let's talk to eternity. So what is sexual assault? How would you define it or what do you see it as?
3: To me, it also means not just like the Black and white by the legal definition, but also the gray area. And I think that's something for me, it took many, many years after being sexually assaulted to understand what that gray area meant. And so I think legally there's language around sexual assault, but then I also think about the things that are unwanted, right? Unwanted touching, constant wearing down of, you know, asking for sex when you say no, You can be sexually assaulted in a relationship. So even if you've had sex with that person before and you enjoyed it, if you say no or you're tired and someone keeps pushing you or it's just kind of ignoring all your bodily verbal cues, et cetera, and still doing that, that is also sexual assault. And one thing that I learned while I was writing the book, in my experience, and just about everyone I knew, was that we fell into that gray area.
0: And we know the research shows that so many survivors, usually sexual violence happens, after you've consented to one sexual activity, but not to another.
3: Right. And also then you, the feeling that, especially if it's someone you know, or you've had a previous sexual relationship with that person, then you start feeling like, oh, do I even have the right to feel this way? Right? Like, yes. am I the problem? Am I being sensitive? Did I take this too far? And then you kind of flip it on you know, its head because you're thinking, I already consented to one sexual act or a sexual relationship. So what makes this any different? And so it's icky because... To me, I think a lot of sexual violence happens in that so-called gray area that we don't talk about.
0: And I think that kind of brings to that survivor experience where you say, oh, I don't think that really counted or it wasn't real maybe because I don't know that picture of like the stranger danger didn't happen. So how do we as survivors deal with thoughts about our experiences counting aren't real by someone else's definition or even our own definition?
3: So I think when something bad happens to us, we have that feeling, right? There's a sinking feeling in your stomach. You know something is wrong. You're not enjoying it. You might be smiling on the outside, but inside maybe you're shaking. I think those are really important things to honor. Honor what your body is doing. Your body talks to you if you listen. And I think for a lot of survivors, we kind of lose touch with our bodies when we've been sexually assaulted or we're disconnected from our bodies. It took me, I think, about six years to call sexual assault, sexual assault, because I felt icky about it. It didn't have the terminology, but I knew from how I felt about it. You may not know what it is, but something feels like it's changed within you. Something has changed.
0: Trusting that the sweat under your armpits, the clench in your tummy, the hair on the back of your neck. And we're oftentimes told not to trust ourselves. You know, when we're younger, when we're children, we see something wrong or something wrong happens to us. We're told, you know, it was in your head or you're wrong. But pushing back on that is a really important part of our healing.
3: Absolutely. I think so much of what we do, like, we just don't honor intuition enough. We don't honor gut feelings enough. And so I think in a situation like that where you're experiencing sexual violence or violence of any kind, your body is screaming at you. I wish that we just were teaching people from an early age to start honoring intuition. It may not be in a textbook, but it's there, right? It's your body's way of communicating with you and telling you something isn't right.
0: There are a lot of troubling myths out there about sexual assault. What are some of the myths about sexual assault that you've come across?
3: Ooh, ooh, they all make me cringe when I think about them. One of the most obvious being, well, you shouldn't have worn that, which is silly, right? Like, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter what you wear. You don't deserve to be sexually assaulted. You get to wear whatever you want. That is just an excuse. So that one, I think, is a big one and just really ridiculous. The alcohol one really gets me. You know, those two really kind of make me a little bit sick in the stomach. And then I think also the idea that if it was serious, you would report it. Yes. If it really happened to you, you would report it and you would go to the police. Ugh. At this point, I think it's pretty fair to say that most people do not trust going to the police. So when you look at the stats, it's like nine out of 10 women, at least, in that statistic, the heterosexual statistic, don't report their sexual assault. You're dealing with police who aren't even properly trained To take your statement, you may be queer, you may be trans, you may be in a non monogamous relationship. There are all these little things that start to add up against you as your identities intersect that make it harder to go report. And then on top of it, there are so few false reports, but I think people always think, well, if you didn't report it, you know, it must not have happened or it must be false. And the thing about false reports is that it's such a tiny number in comparison to the amount of People who are sexually assaulted every year. And that number, like that tiny number of reports, are also inflated because the police recording them don't understand, right? There's no uniformity in how to document that.
0: How do we as survivors go about unlearning some of these myths?
3: So I think first it's unlearning for ourselves and having compassion for ourselves. And then I think it's consuming literature, consuming other people's stories. And the great part about this time that we're in is that we are getting to share our stories on all these platforms. On social media, we have groups. There are publications dedicated to sharing stories about sexual violence. And it makes you feel like you're not alone, but you also learn a lot about other people and yourself and what you've gone through. And so I think that it means that we all need to start consuming the experiences of other people and learn from it. And I think a lot of us are so afraid, whether you know we're survivors ourselves or not, That when you choose to unlearn something, your whole kind of life view is going to be undone. And that's not true. That's not true. So it starts with us and it starts with understanding that we don't deserve it. There's no way in hell we deserve it. It doesn't matter what you were wearing, what you were drinking, what you look like, what your race is. We don't deserve it. And from there, we make a commitment to ourselves to not judge ourselves on these things and also make a commitment to expand our minds and see how we can play a role in kind of demolishing these stereotypes. Because when we all give in to them, we are complicit. We're complicit in violence, in a way, right? So big question, a lot of work to be done, but I think starting small is the way to go.
0: Our race, class, gender, ability impacts the way we are not only targeted for sexual violence, but also how we access support and are believed. In conversation about sexual violence, we often see whiteness being centered. Can you tell us about the impacts that could have on survivors from marginalized communities?
3: For white women in particular, and I only say white women because the bulk of the research we have has been focused around heterosexual couples and the heterosexual sexual violence. From slavery, white women were always seen as women. So even though black women were taking care of their children, were mothers, they were never seen as a woman. Where Black women were kind of seen as very tough, very physically and emotionally capable of handling taxing labor. White women were not seen that way. So they were seen as in need, right? Damsels in distress, fair, fragile, pure, domestic, deserving of help and male attention. And I think that's something that's carried on, especially in textbooks that healthcare providers use. There's this idea that the perfect, helpless victim who needs support is this white woman. She's middle class. She's frail. She's fragile. And we see that a lot also with this narrative of know like interracial relationships which is a whole different piece but the idea that white women are always needed of help and that racialized women and especially black women because they're in such a contrast to white women that black women can fend for themselves right they're not getting assaulted they're assaulting they're aggressive or if they're not assaulted nobody would assault them because they're just rough and tumble right they're so rough and tough And it does persist because the research that shows, especially when it comes to violence against women, black women are more likely to be arrested for defending themselves than white women. Where the consequences come in for this is that for black women, for indigenous women, for women of color, for bisexual women, lesbian women, trans and non-binary folks, women with disabilities, they are several times more likely to experience sexual violence than their white, cis, heterosexual counterparts. That's not a coincidence. That has to do with like the very real barriers to being believed, but also like a very long legacy of only white women being viewed as needing help. So it kind of blocks everybody else from reporting, from being believed. And also when there's no research out there, when there's no literature out there to see someone like you or someone talking about experiencing sexual violence as a woman of color or a racialized person, then you also don't believe it can happen to you. Right. So if everything's about white women, even like with the Me Too movement, like that term was appropriated from a black woman, Tarana Burke. And then when Me Too became a mainstream movement, like all other white feminist movements, where were the black women? Where were the racialized women? They weren't anywhere. Just mad. I know. I'm mad all over again. I'm mad all over again.
0: Eternity, we have some questions from the Consent Action Team, a group of student leaders on campus who've been building this podcast with us. Here's the first question. What is consent?
3: Oh, such a good question.
4: So, to
3: me, consent is when we give agency. I think that's the first thing to me, providing people with agency. I think back to when we were kids, you know, and you had maybe you had an aunt who was like, go say hi, right? Like, go say hi, give everybody hugs and kisses. Maybe you didn't want to. We didn't have a lot of agency as children. But I think today, consent, as adults, as students, consent is really about appreciating that we all have boundaries, we all have agency, and not trying to violate that and overtake it. So... We talk a lot about consent in terms of sexual violence and usually like a clear verbal cue. But I also think we can give consent through our body, through our boundaries and the other person or the other few people accepting that boundary and leaving that at that, leaving you with agency. Consent is a very big word that can be applied to many different things, not just sexual violence. But I to me, it's all about respecting boundaries, respecting verbal cues, respecting bodily cues, right? And knowing that we all have boundaries, and we all deserve to have our boundaries respected, and we all deserve the right to say yes or no.
4: Does it count if the sexual violence happened online?
3: Yes. Yes, a million times it counts if the sexual violence happened online. And... I think we need to pay way more attention to that because right now, a lot of the things that we do, it happens online. So it can be through cyber stalking, cyber bullying, the sharing of intimate photos. And for a particular age group, so I think a lot of folks in their 20s, they're the most at risk for this type of online harassment and bullying and airing of intimate photos. So yes, absolutely. And it is no less valid than experiencing sexual violence in person.
4: How do I cope with triggering information that I may come across online?
3: So I think when it comes to triggering information online, it is so it's important, I think, for all of us to understand that throughout our lives, especially when ex- we experience sexual violence, there may be a lot of things that are triggers for us. And the triggers may be greater, they may taper off or they may return. They act like you know, healing is not linear, so you may feel like something is not a trigger anymore, and then it becomes a trigger again. So online, I think what we need to do is we need to carve out space for ourselves when we see things that are triggering. So ideally, if you prefer to see content warnings or trigger warnings, I don't think that Everything online, right, comes with that. So, how do we then kind of support ourselves and care for ourselves? And I think the big part about this is caring for yourself. So, stepping back, right, like stepping back from whatever you've seen online, doing something that makes you feel good. Maybe you want to go for a run. Maybe you want to watch, you know, an episode of your favorite show. You want to read a book, or maybe you just need to take some time for yourself, meditate, put the phone away. I think these are the best ways that you can cope with it is by caring for yourself and removing yourself from the situation or whatever you've seen online and I say this because there are so many things online that we cannot control right there's so many things that like we're just going about our day looking at and then it comes up and we feel triggered because you know there's nobody really kind of stopping these things from happening and so the best thing you can do is create that what that system of care looks like for you when you experience something. For me, I remove myself. I'll take, you know, a few minutes to take a breath. Maybe I'll grab a glass of water, maybe go for a walk. And using that to kind of recenter yourself. And sometimes you may not be able to return to it the same day, right? So maybe you're just like, you know what, this is enough for now. Let's, I'm just gonna leave. What I think is so great about a lot of the events I've been doing recently is that a lot of event organizers also have someone you can, you know, you can speak to. But maybe you're in an event and that's not there. It's okay to leave. Giving yourself permission to exit the chat, so to speak. I think that's really, really important too.
0: What's a feeling that surprised you in your work supporting survivors or as a survivor yourself?
3: I think what surprised me most was the reception to it. I convinced myself, because I have a job as a journalist, because I'm a woman, because I am a woman of color, I had convinced myself that if I speak about sexual violence, I'm going to basically lose everything. Like, I'm going to lose my credibility. People are going to look at me differently. And people are going to look at me differently, not just because when we talk about survivors, we're talking about sexual violence, but also I'm a black woman, we're talking about sexual violence. And so I was really shocked that that didn't actually happen. When I was writing my book, the chapter on sexual violence was one of the last chapters I wrote. And it's the shortest chapter in the book because I just didn't want to go there. And I'm like, but how can I write a book about campus life without addressing sexual violence, even as a survivor? And it was important for me to write about it, but also write about it in a way that I felt like I was not crossing my own boundary. And that was really important to me. And I'm like, you know what? If the chapter is short, oh, well, this is all I have to say. I'm not saying any more about it. I really, I really was shocked that it wasn't the end of my career. And I think that also says a lot about how prevalent sexual assault is and sexual violence is and just how pervasive it is. And it's either us or someone we know, right? It's just so pervasive in our society. And I think we're getting to a place maybe not making as much progress as we would like, but I think we're getting to a place where we're starting to understand that sexual violence can happen to us. It may have happened to us we don't know, or may have happened or is happening to someone we know. And so I was really surprised by that. And I think some of that too, talking about rape culture on campus, it is a big deal. There is a sig- like a massive rape culture on campus. And so I was very surprised that I was able to talk about that. And people be receptive to it. And I think by talking about it, I hope that it pushed the needle a little bit in this conversation. When you know someone who's gone through it, it's very different than hearing about it in abstract language.
0: I cannot thank you enough for writing that book. There are so many survivors that I know who have picked it up and saw themselves for the first time reflected in a story. It was so rich and funny. If people don't know from this podcast, maybe, but Attorney is so funny. Thank you, for And there's joy with trauma.
3: You can't take everything from us, you know? Like, at least have a little bit of joy. At least, like, have a laugh. I think it's so important, right? Joy is support. Laughter is support. And so I'm glad that the people identified with the book, but also could laugh because sometimes things are funny that shouldn't be funny, but they are. Because what else do we have in that moment?
0: What does healing look like for you right now?
3: Healing looks like inner work for me right now. I think I spent a lot of time focused on what kind of survivor I should be, how I should heal, what I should be doing. And in turn, by doing that, I think I spent a lot of time pretending I was someone I wasn't because I was running from the inner work that I had to do. And so for me right now, healing is about getting back in touch with myself. So I'm, I'm at a point in my life and in my journey where the good days outweigh the bad days by far, like by far. But now I'm trying to fine tune it, right? To me, it's understanding that the work is never done, but you can also take a break and that there is also happiness. And I think I'm at that point in my journey where I flip the page and I feel so much happier. I feel like I've survived and I never thought I would get here. And it feels really great to be here. And yeah, I just want to enjoy it, honestly.
0: Attorney, I'm so happy you're here.
3: It was a pleasure to be here, and thank you. Thank you for this conversation and this podcast, and thank you for having me.
0: Trusting ourselves is a cornerstone of healing. Thank you, Eternity, for affirming that our hearts, bodies, and minds tell us in many ways when things aren't okay— I love her reminder to trust ourselves when we feel that ick. If you're listening to this as a survivor, I want you to know your feelings are valid. I believe you. You're not alone. It doesn't matter what you wore. It doesn't matter if you had something to drink. It doesn't matter if you froze, didn't know what to say. It's not your fault. The person responsible for sexual assault is the person who commits it. We are ending this episode with a poem filled with dreams for survivors by Kanisha. Kanisha is a TMU student who's a part of the peer leadership group Consent Action Team. They are a fat, Black, queer, non-binary artist. As a poet storyteller, musician, and organizer, they strive to dream and co-create liberation through all they do. Let's listen to Kanisha share, The Year We Were Loved Enough to Be Safe.
4: The year we are loved enough to be safe, I will thaw open in the morning and realize this time all my kin made it home safe. We won't know what to do with our hands when there are no more new ripping seams to safety pin, but we will learn. See a friend mirrored beside us and pull our threads, learn how to mend together until our stitches are a circle, one's healing feeding another's. After lifetimes of less, we'll feel hunger at last, we'll spend a season browning Sowing our liberation everywhere our bodies and wheels and minds can take us. Our flowers are here, and we are not dead. We'll stand at the edges of places we once couldn't walk when it became too dark. We'll think of all the afters that will never follow this moment. Never stand in sixes, or threes, or twos, and wonder which of us will be one. Never look at the men in our lives and wonder which of them will make us one. We'll think of all the wounds we bared, willing our blood to be red enough to signal stop or a new way to try things. All those generational curses we'll bear no more. All those places we won't have to walk. Change laps gently at us carrying away all the old skins we shed when summer cools. We'll take the children to a museum to remember a world that was a mouth with too many teeth that cut up our memories. We'll see reflected in them a childhood, a girlhood that stretches long and lived and full straight into autumn. We'll release a breath we've been holding for years. The future seems less fragile like this, with our hands pressed in clay as we release and hold and gender and ungender ourselves into our own. We'll spend an autumn sinking into ourselves, complicit in our own comforts until winter feels like an ever long exhale. When a year ends, full of thimbled fingers and hands still sun warm and sticky, we will rest on our knees once more to light a candle on the windowsill echoing to a place where we'll always meet you we never wanted to do this alone and will whisper I wish you were here to our kin and our ancestors and those past us's who didn't get to walk where we do now but they will be here because we are still here The year is 2022. The year is 2023. The year is every day we promise these paths we won't walk again. I'm thinking of a place I've never known, but every time I speak its name, it becomes realer. And every morning can be a morning I thaw open and realize all my kin made it home safe.
0: I feel so grounded listening to that poem. Thank you so much, Kanisha. You just listened to a podcast about sexual violence and healing. This can bring up a lot of different feelings. What are the ways you're gonna nourish your heart? Are you gonna take an art class? Are you gonna write a comic? Are you gonna go get a glass of water? Are you gonna eat that apple that's been sitting on your shelf for so long? Are you going to say something really kind to yourself? Whatever you do, take care of you. Healing Comes in Waves is a collaborative project between Consent Comes First, the Office of Sexual Violence Support and Education, with the student leadership group Consent Action Team at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you to those student leaders for your brilliance, excitement, and expert advice. Also, thank you to Jai Ching Wilson-Yang and Famita Sahan. This show is produced by Ren Bangert, Katie Jensen, and Mahal Stein at Vocal Fry Studios. Find more episodes of the show, scripts, and resources about healing at HealingComesInWaves.ca. Follow the show wherever you find podcasts. This is Healing Comes in Waves. I'm your host Farah Khan. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad you're here.